Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording from the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum on Monday the 8th of April 2019. The session title was How Can We Revive UK Economic Growth? The speaker is John Mills, an entrepreneur, economist and author noted for his writing on Brexit, the Labour Party and the exchange rate. The topic is based on a recent pamphlet by John Mills which can be downloaded at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash John Mills. Please note as this is a recording of a live public meeting, the audio is at times less than perfect. Okay, well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for coming this evening. Why, why is economic growth so important? What's happened to it? Well, I guess it's worth starting off by just uh, reminding us what happened since the end of World War II. For about the first 25 years after World War II, the West grew, on average, at something like 4% per annum. And people's living standards really did go up very sharply. And then when the crisis hit in the 1970s, the growth rate slowed up, but it still was somewhere around about 3% on average across the Western world for the last quarter of a century of the last century. But since then, particularly covering the period over the the, uh, crisis in 2008, it's gone way down. uh, And indeed, it's barely been above 1%. And this is a really, I think, very crucial problem for countries like the UK for a number of reasons. One is that if you have an overall growth rate of only somewhere around about one or one and a half percent, most of the population get no increase in living standards out of all that at all. And indeed, if you look back over the last decade, uh, most people in the UK have had no increase in living standards for the next, for the last 10 years or so and looking ahead don't look like getting them for the next 10 years. And this has a lot to do with all the discontent in the country, with the distrust of the sort of ruling elite we've got, with our political institutions. Uh, but I think there's a wider picture too, which is that uh, if the West continues to do because it's not just a UK problem, this is a problem right across the West, as badly as this, while the West rumps ahead with growth rates of 6 or 7 or even 10%, in the case of China, you know, this is going to really undermine liberal democracy. And whatever happens, if we only have a growth rate of 1% and they have a growth rate averaging 4 or 5%, then our influence and role in the world is inevitably going to diminish. So there are all sorts of reasons why getting the growth rate up a bit to some more reasonable level. The world average growth rate is about 3.5% per annum. Getting back to something like that is what we need to do if we're not going to slide down the, uh, the pecking order year after year after year, which is what we've been doing. Now, one of the really interesting things about the sort of discussion climate in the UK is how little attention is really paid to this problem. Um, and Brexit is sort of consumes us all, uh, but you don't really hear many people talking about what to do about the economic growth. And what you do is you hear remedies and discussions which frankly, I think, don't uh, bear much fruit at all. On the right, you tend to have uh, proposals for a smaller state, lower taxation, deregulation, all this sort of thing. Uh, But there's very little evidence that actually that does very much for the growth rate. On the left, you tend to have uh, industrial strategies, more borrowing facilities for business, less short-termism, these sort of remedies. Uh, But they don't really add up to much. Most of them are symptoms rather than causes of what's gone wrong. So really I think you've got to look somewhere else if you're going to try and get to grips with this problem. And I think that the place to look 
is the imbalances in the British economy. And I think there are four really big imbalances which are the main reason why we're in the predicament we are. Now, the first of these has to do with investment because the UK invests a remarkably small proportion of our national income, our gross domestic product every year, compared to elsewhere. We invest around about 16 or 17 percent, whereas the world average is about 26 percent. It's much, much higher. And in China, it's something like 45 percent. So there's a big problem about the quantum of investment we have, but there's an even bigger problem about what we invest in. Because actually, if you look back at the Industrial Revolution and what changed then and precipitated the growth in living standards that took place ever since, what, 250 years ago, it's actually a comparatively small range of investments which have done the business. And these are grouped around technology and mechanisation and power, and actually very little else. Most investment doesn't produce much in the way of increasing growth rates. And that's true of nearly all public sector investment. It's true of housing, it's true of schools, hospitals, road, rail, infrastructure, public buildings. That doesn't produce much in the way of economic growth. But nor does most of the investment in the private sector either, in office blocks, in shopping malls, in new restaurants, even in IT. What produces the real increases is this comparatively narrow range, as I say, in mechanisation, technology and power. And you need to think of something like a combine harvester replacing a sickle or a new machine replacing one that produces twice as much with the same inputs or a computer compared to a, a slide rule. These are the changes that really make the big difference. And uh, one of the concepts that's really very important in this is where those returns go. And they go into what's called the social rate of return. Now, if you look at most investments, people tend to judge them by whether they produce a return to the people who put up the money to make them possible. And that return tends to be pretty low, 5 or 10% at most. Whereas these sorts of really high-powered investments are capable of producing much higher returns to the populations as a whole, uh, often of the order of 50% or something per annum or more. And this is spread around not just the return to the person who put up the investment, but it's on machines that um, produce far more profitability for the people who run the companies, with bigger tax base, better products, uh, better wages for people, better profitability, and, and the, the, the social rate of return that you can achieve is very much higher. Actually, if you really want to get the growth rate up, essentially what you need to do is to switch about 4% of the national income into these very high return investments. And if you get a 50% return on that, 50% times 4% is 2%. And in a very simplified way, this is essentially what you need to do uh, to get uh, in investment up. So the first problem we need to deal with is investment. The second is uh, the fact that we've de-industrialized to a remarkably large extent. And this is a very big problem in terms of growth for four different reasons, or they're all interlocked together. Uh, the first is that what, what happens in manufacturing, it's essentially what happens is the investment that is really uh, the, the ones that does the business, that really increases gross national product, uh, is essentially one that you tend to find 
in internationally traded manufacturing. This is the which is what's driven the world uh, and all the countries that have industrialized and grown rapidly. It's tended to be because they've had really efficient and effective <coughs> export sectors with, where mechanization and, um, and, and technology and power have been able to fructify. And what we've done in this country is we've uh, run our affairs in a way which has actually made that sort of investment very difficult to do and very difficult to do profitably. And this is why it, it hasn't been uh, taking place. And what we've lost as a result of all this is all the benefits that you get from increased productivity in manufacturing. Uh, but there's been more to it than that. The, 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 the loss of jobs in manufacturing has been very marked. The, the number of people employed in manufacturing has gone down by about two-thirds. And by and large, manufacturing tends to pay much more, uh, better wages and more provide more stability than uh, service jobs do. And so you've got a problem in that sense. There's also a third problem, which is one of regional imbalance, which is that most of the manufacturing that's disappeared has been out of London, out of the southeast. Interesting, up to about the 1970s, the uh, north of England was more prosperous. Wages per head of the population were higher than they were in the south. That's now completely changed around. Now wages in London are 30 or 40 percent higher than they are in the rest of the country. By the time you get redistribution, that uh, ratio tends to fall, but it's still very high. Um, the, uh, the other really big problem about having manufacturing going down the tubes the way it has is it's left us with not enough to sell to the rest of the world. And that leads on to the third problem which we have, which is that we cannot pay our way in the world. We've got a huge balance of payments problem. Now, this has been averaging something like 100 billion pounds a year for the last, uh, well, really since about 2000. And the only way you can finance a, a balance of payments deficit on current account is by borrowing money or selling assets. And we've done this on an industrial scale for the last uh, 20 years. And as a result of all this, we've lost control of large sections of our economy. And you may say, well, it doesn't matter that much who owns the assets that we've got, the companies and the housing. And up to a point, that's true. But if you push this beyond a certain point and you find the ownership of businesses are all in the hands of people abroad who inevitably are going to put their country at the front of the queue rather than ours, who may well have their research and development close to their head office, who pay most of their taxes to their home government, and who may well divide up the world output in ways that are not favourable to us. There are big costs to us of not having control of our economy. The third problem is to do with borrowing and austerity. There's a feeling that uh, a, a well-known tendency among the government to think that the way to get the balance of payments, sorry, the government deficit down is to cut expenditure and to increase taxation. And it, but actually, if you look at all the balances there are in the economy, the real driver, the real reason why the government has to keep borrowing money every year is because we have a balance of payments problem, because all borrowing has to be matched by <coughs> lending and all services have to be managed by, by uh, matched by deficits. And if you have a big balance of payments problem, you inevitably have a government borrowing problem because the balance of payments sucks demand out of the economy that has to be replaced somehow. 
and the government has to borrow to do that. So there's a big problem there. And then finally, we finish up with an equality problem, which is that very slow rates of economic growth tend to produce higher levels of inequality in every dimension, and the particular ones that I think are important are, first of all, the regional ones, which I referred to earlier on, secondly, around the generations, because a huge difference in the, the prospects and, and, and success of generations if you move from the, the baby boomers on to the millennials, and thirdly, of course, socio-economic variations in, and inequality, which have got more and more marked over the last 30 or 40 years. Now, what are we going to do about all this? What are the remedies? I think the, the answer, really, to start with, is that we need to look at what the underlying rationale for economics is. And what happened was that in the 1970s, uh, the Keynesian economy, which had run so successfully for the first 25 years or so after the war, broke down well, with the advent of much higher levels of inflation. And very quickly over that period, uh, the Keynesian view of life was overtaken by monetarism and then neoliberalism. And neoliberalism's real rationale was dealing with inflation. And, and if you look at what basically neoliberal economists want to do, what they think is the most important element of economic management, it's keeping price levels or price prices down to pretty low levels. But actually what's happened is that inflation has more or less disappeared as a major problem and that's been replaced by lack of growth. But lack of growth requires very different uh, orders of priorities to deal with it than just simply dealing with inflation. And in particular, what happened when inflation was the main target was that the way to tackle this was the monetarist route of reducing the money supply, putting up interest rates. And the effect this had was to enormously to increase the exchange rate right across the Western world compared to what's happening in the Far East. This lack of competitiveness, I think, is at the root of a huge amount of the problems that we've got, because the effect of lack of competitiveness is to discourage investment in exactly the areas where we most need it, going back to technology and mechanisation and power and deindustrialization. And what we have to do is to make these parts of our economy much more uh, attractive and profitable than they are at, at the moment. And this is difficult because the economy at the moment is very much divided between services and manufacturing. And for services, we've got huge natural advantages in our location and our language and our universities and our workforce, which we just simply don't have in manufacturing. So services can operate, particularly because they're not particularly price sensitive, at an exchange rate which is completely different from what you need in manufacturing. And services can do really quite well and have done well with an exchange rate of maybe a dollar fifty to the pound, whereas manufacturing needs something that's very much lower than this. So what we really need to do is to readjust our, uh, our economic aims and the framework of ideas around which we're operating to try and get the economy to work and be prepared to work with a much lower exchange rate to make exporting profitable, to deal with the competitiveness problem, to make it uh, worthwhile investing in the areas of the economy which can produce the biggest returns and to jack the growth rate up. Now, is it possible to do this? There are six standard arguments that say that it's impossible to use an exchange rate, a competitive exchange rate policy to get the economy to grow more quickly. 
and some of them are pretty easy to deal with and some are more difficult. One is would we have retaliation? Pretty unlikely. When the pound came down from a dollar, two dollars to one fifty over the period of the crisis, there was no retaliation there. And we're starting from a situation where we've got an enormous balance of payments deficit and clearly something's got to be done about it. It can't be done if we've got an open economy. Again, this isn't true. Uh, and in particular, if you look around the most successful economies in the world, ones like China, South Korea, what you find there is that they, they've got no compunction at all about making sure they run with competitive exchange rates. And if they can do it, so can, so can we. Um, would we make ourselves poorer by having a lower exchange rate? No, we won't. If, if measured in US dollars, of course, we would do. But people don't shop in dollars, they shop in pounds. And actually, if you look at the international statistics, what you find is a very high correlation between more competitive exchange rates and higher rates of economic growth. It's been tried and failed. Not really. What's the trouble with the economy in this country is for a long time we've had an overvalued exchange rate and we've had a succession of crises as the years have rolled by and what we've tended to do is to devalue too little and too late. And then there's an argument that the British are no good at manufacturing at all, but with a price sake we've got the Industrial Revolution going in the first place. Now, I don't think there's a shred of evidence that if you can make a lot of money out of it, you wouldn't have a new generation of entrepreneurs moving into manufacturing, just as has happened all over the world when these sort of opportunities have been there. But there is one more serious problem, which is would we have inflation as a result of this? And the answer is you might have a bit more, but the record shows that actually devaluations don't produce nearly as much inflation on the whole as people fear. And even if you have a bit more, this would be a price worth paying. So are there no problems about this? No, there are two problems, and they're very ones that are absolutely essential to get right to make this strategy work. One is that you have to be make sure that you do direct the economy into investing in the most productive areas of the, uh, that I've just described, Otherwise, you'll never create the resources to enable you to shift into having a high level of investment. You'll never get the economy to grow more rapidly unless you can get the level of investment or the proportion of GDP up to something like the world average, which is 26%. But that's a big increase on what we've got at the moment. And you need to make sure that you have enough in the really productive investment to create the resources to do it. The other thing is you have to make sure that the uh, responsiveness of exports and imports to changes in, in, uh, in the exchange rate are strong enough. And there has been some evidence recently that the what's called the elasticity of demand, the responsiveness of imports and exports to price changes have gone down. But if you think about it, this is inevitably going to happen. If what you do is you run your economy in a way which runs all the price-sensitive areas of it out of business, you're bound to get the, uh, the sensitivity going down. What you need to do to overcome that is to make sure that you have a low enough rate to, to make it profitable to invest in new plant and, and machinery in this country rather than somewhere else, and this could be done. Now, finally, you're back to the area of, of this all as possible, are the risks worth taking? And what I would say to you is this, that the risks of doing nothing are actually very high. The risks are that we have another 10 years with no increase in living standards, with all the degradation of political uh, environment that we've seen uh, recently, uh, with the country falling back further and further behind the rest of the world. 
and this seems to me to be a very daunting prospect. There are some risks in taking the sort of action which I've been talking about, but I think they're comparatively low. If you weigh these risks up together, I think the chances of, of running the economy more successfully with the sort of policies I've just outlined to you are much less risky than carrying on as we are at the moment, which could, I think, finish up by seeing this country running into real difficulties over the next few years. And I think we could avoid that happening. OK, thanks very much. Very interesting. I've got lots of questions as well, but I'm going to ask other people for their questions first. Thank you. It was a very interesting talk. Um, my question is a bit broader in the sense that um, the way I understand it or look at it is that there doesn't appear to be the political will uh, in our country, wherever you turn around, to want the economy to grow. I kind of feel that there's a lot of emphasis on have, keeping things stable and being very wary of rocking the boat and uh, throwing things up, you know, letting perhaps uh, the competition you talked about, uh, you know, letting uh, weaker companies uh, uh, go down the drain and, you know, putting more into uh, productive investment. And another theme that creeps in is that there's certainly a kind of influence of uh, environmentalism if you like, uh, too much growth is going to be not so good for us. So when you put all that together, I'm not that surprised that there is not a lot of discussion about the economy and how to make it grow when the political will is lacking in it really, seriously. Yeah. There was a phrase you used earlier on, uh, a social rate of capital, was it? Mm -hmm. Social rate of return. Uh, social rate of return. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Any more? For any more? There's two questions I particularly wanted to throw at you, and then I'll let you come back. Um, first of all, you say right at the start, this is a problem across the Western world. So how does the ho is there a solution for the whole of the Western world? Are there common problems for the whole of the Western world? Uh, how does devaluation or lower exchange rate help with that? Um, and secondly, how would you do it? Because we, I mean, we're in a, we've been for a decade now with pretty much zero interest rates. So what levers can the government pull to devalue the pound um, further? Than, um, so pick up those, any of those. Okay. Things. Well, first of all, on your point about... Uh, general lack of interest in all this. I mean, I, I think it is true that there's been a lack of interest in all this. Uh, but I think what is now happening is it's becoming rather more of a pressing issue simply because the results of having the very low rates of economic growth and in terms of discontent, the economy fracturing and the political system fracturing, enormous amount of uh, uh, all, all the Brexit issues and so on, which had a lot to do with all this. I think it is now coming up the the agenda. You are right, which is that there are some people who are very much opposed to economic growth on the grounds that, you know, this puts too much of a strain on the world ecology and so forth. Uh, I think the most convincing argument on that is that actually, in the end, the really big constraint is going to be population. And the population is going to depend very much on what happens in places like Africa and South Asia in terms of increasing living standards, because what uh, history shows right across all religions and, and and cultures and everything else is that once living standards get up to somewhere around about $3,000 a year, that's roughly the break point, uh, then 
the number of children that women want to have falls precipitately from about six to about two. And the only way we're ever going to get this, the, 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 the growth in population, the world population down, is to make people in Africa and South Asia more prosperous than they are now. And the only way we're going to do that is by getting the world growth rate up. I and mean, the idea that what you're going to do is to have sort of stagnation, which is going to solve the world's resource problems, I think is wrong. What will happen then is the population just go on and on and on going up to a point which is unmanageable. So that's quite a complicated argument, but I think it's a very uh, important one. On the social rate of return, this, this is quite a complicated concept, but it's actually a very important one, which is you know, if you invest you know, £100 or a million pounds, what sort of return does the whole of the economy get? And the way to calculate this is to see how much um, any individual economy has spent on investment over quite a long period of time to go you know, deal with stumps and, and, and booms and so on normally about 12 or 15 years, and then to see to what extent has the, has the gross domestic product or the, the national income actually increased. And the variation is absolutely enormous. And if you say, well, how does China manage to grow 10% per annum? The reason is partly that what they've done is to invest a much higher proportion of their national income in uh, investment as we have, but it's much more importantly, or as importantly, what they've done is they've got a much higher return out of the investment they've they put in. And I mean the mathematics of it are that if you take the proportion of GDP going to investment and you multiply that by the return you get on the investment, that gives you your growth rate. That's a sort of, uh, sort of uh, calculation which is kind of fixed one, sort of accounting identity. And again if you look at Japan during the de decades after World War II, and the Japanese economy was growing about 10% per annum cumulatively for about three decades. And again, what you had is about 30% of GDP going into investment with a return of about 30%, a social rate of return of about 30%. You multiply the two up and you get uh, a cumulative growth rate of 9 or 10%. That's what actually happened. Now, our problem is that we're just not investing in these areas of the economy or, or in these types of investment which actually produce these very high rates of return. You know, if you spend all your investment that you do make on roads and schools and hospitals, you just the economy just doesn't grow. That's 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 the problem, and the way this uh, social rate of return comes back is not just lots of money going to the people who put up the investment. It's spread by because it gets absorbed by higher uh, wages and salaries, by better products, by more of a tax base, uh, and so forth. So and it, it it diffuses through the economy, but that's what actually happens. On your points about um, uh, the rest of the world, uh, yes, the rest of the Western world. I mean, I think what actually happened was that the whole of the Western world in the 1970s got captured by neoliberalism, and right across the, well, especially the European Union at the time, and also the United States and the UK, all put up interest rates enormously. And the ex I mean, the exchange rate went up during that period by an amazing amount. It roughly doubled in the UK from the late 1970s, this is in real terms, um, uh, and it's what, uh, it went, went up between then and, and, uh, and the, when it peaked in the 2000s to roughly double what it was before. And, and the way this works is this, if you're if running a manufacturing company, about a third of your costs are uh, a combination of 
raw materials, machinery and components, all of which have world prices, but two-thirds of your costs, two-thirds, are locally incurred in sterling, of course, in our case, on wages, direct wages, management charges, overhead costs of all types, taxation, interest charges, and these are all charged out in sterling. And if you charge these out to the rest of the world through the exchange rate at too high a rate, you finish up with goods which just aren't competitive, and very competitive world markets for industrial goods. And this is what happens. If you double, if you do the maths, it's very simple. And if you double the exchange rate, and two-thirds of those costs have to be added on to your export prices, they go up by whatever it is, 66 and two-thirds. And I'll tell you, having I've spent my life buying and selling goods all over the world. You start charging 66% more than you did before, you won't get much business. And this is essentially what's gone wrong with us. And you know, I think this is a problem which, it, which I mean, the, the, the Far East on the whole never went in for this sort of uh, neoliberalism in the same way that we did. And they heavily devalued uh, in the late 90s, in, 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 at the end of the last century. And this just left them incredibly competitive. I mean, if I can just say a little bit about my own experience, which I was involved in manufacturing for really quite a long time in this country, and it was a absolute pig's life and terribly difficult to make enough money to invest enough to get it going and in the end the company I was running went under in the 1980s and I had to start all over again vowing never to get involved in manufacturing but built up <laughs> business as a trading company done very well and the reason for this is that we could get goods made in China for about half the what we could in the UK you know ship them across the world it was still 40% or something cheaper and, you know, this is not just our experience, it's loads of other people's experience. And I just watched the rest of the Western world as getting raped by what was going on in China and uh, the other Far Eastern countries. And, it, and this is what really what's motivated me to feel so strongly about all this. It's this bitter experience of what it's actually like at the sharp end, being subjected to what's been, what's been going on. And then finally, your, your question was, what can you do to get the pound down? Not all that terribly difficult. Bear in mind... You've got a big balance of payments deficit like we have. You have to, on the other side, fill that gap up by selling assets, by borrowing money from abroad, and all of this can be constrained relatively easily. And we, you know, we're about the only country in the world that has no public interest test if our companies get taken over. And we've sold vast quantities of portfolio assets in uh, this country to finance the balance of payments deficit we've got. We don't need to do that. You could have public interest tests. You can make it less attractive through tax systems to make people, you know, at the moment loads of property in this country sold to foreign interest. You can make it less attractive to do that. You can get the Bank of England to sell currency instead of, uh, of, of supporting the currency to bring it down. And the, the, the fact that all this is possible is very easily demonstrated by the fact that the most successful economists in the the world do all of this. If you look at what happens in places like China and South Korea, they don't have the, you know, same sort of view we have. As the stronger the pound is, the better. You know, they're much more interested in having the 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 currencies really competitive to make sure the manufacturing industry survives. So it's a, it's a change of mindset that's really required more than anything else. Okay. Uh, any other comments or thoughts, uh, Nico? Um, very much enjoyed your introduction. Uh, I think if you look at the Brexit debate, it's very interesting that nobody ever talks about manufacturing. They can only ever talk about trade. It's not very profound to observe that if you don't have anything worth 
buying their trade is academic. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in your example of kind of reinvigorating manufacturing and slightly worried there's a kind of nostalgic element to it. Um, also, there's no country which has ever declined in manufacturing and then managed to revive it, I can think of. And I'd like to know from you why you think <coughs> services on their own can't cut it. I mean, there is a, as you say, the UK has a natural propensity towards services that has a <coughs> disposition. I mean, is there something about the relationship between manufacturing and services and some balance which is needed to make services a, a viable proposition? And I would observe that the difference between manufacturing and services is, to some extent, semantic. And everything has a service associated with it, and you know, every service, to, to an extent, is backed up by manufactured things. Um, and finally, I just to ask what you make of industrial strategy, which you observed has been a, a Labour or left-wing uh, phenomenon in the past, but obviously the current non-existent industrial strategy has been introduced by the Conservative Party. And how do you think of what do you think of how that was conceived? Gone on the back since, uh, the referendum. Okay, any other points? I can't believe that talking about devaluation doesn't bring out economists in a rash because they, they normally have a like, complete, complete prejudice against it. But anyway, uh, uh, Tony. Yeah, uh, it's just a question really. Um, should we, uh, as it looks like, um, remain in the EU? The chances are the way things are going with the EU is that they will push us to fix sterling to the euro, as they've done with all the East European countries. I'm sure that's, that will be on the cards within a matter of years. What might be the implications of that in terms of your, your model? Yep, that's all right. Uh, 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 Ralph, then Daniel, then Phil. Can I just ask you about your social rate of return in China? Yes, maybe economic growth will be good in the abstract, but it will cause all these problems. 
And that then is embodied in, in these, I think you're right to say there is talk now about industrial strategy. So in Germany, for example, uh, Peter Altenmeyer, who's one of Angela Merkel's henchmen, uh, in February was talking about new industrial policy in Germany. In the US, they're talking about the Green New Deal. But all of these aren't really strategies for economic growth. They're much more yeah. mixing it in with kind of environmentalism and limits and uh, look, uh, boosting employment more than productivity. So I think, it's, to me, any realistic strategy for economic growth has to deal with the economic questions narrowly defined, but it also has to deal with the kind of very strong cultural aversion to prosperity as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll take Phil and then James, and then I'll bring John back in. Um, just picking up on Paris' first point, I mean, I, I, I think the conclusion of that is that this, an alternative strategy isn't something that we can expect to happen through a, a, a sort of a mind chain amongst certainly the current political class. It does have to come out of a, a real public debate um, in, in terms of the need for a different approach. And I think John's established some very important um, foundations for that debate. I mean, areas which I think are very important to, to, to be clear on. One is that Britain and the Western problem is very long established, which is very different from the way the discussion is now. We have another discussion about sort of the Brexit and you know everything was hunky dory until we had this, you know, uh, collapse of confidence because of Brexit or, or whatever. But you've established that this is a long-running problem, as you said. Your introduction goes back to the 1970s, and it's a Western problem. Um, uh, 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 so I think that's very important to state to recognise. Second, very foundational point is that ultimately it is a problem of low investment. Low investment in uh, technology, in mechanisation, in power, as you say. And that, that is driven by low profits. I mean, we're going to have yep. a discussion whether social rate of return is, is, is something which is, should be a popularised term or not. But certainly, low profits, is, uh, as you explain in your book, is what is the disincentive for people to invest. So it is an investment problem. Uh, and I think the third area, which is very important, which Daniel's just picked up on, which is that you call it there's no risk free solutions. I mean, I'd say there's no pain-free solutions. I mean, we are in a real mess in the Western economies, and the idea that there will be an easy, quick fix is, uh, you know, pie in the sky. You know, there there does have to be a lot of dislocation and change, which uh, the political class are very reluctant to change anything that we can see on any question. So there does have to be a lot of change, and I think the public needs to be there needs to be a public debate to recognise that if we're getting out of this, it is a very big problem, and it's one which will involve a, a, a lot of dislocation. To throw a question at you, though, I mean, in terms of the, so the, the diagnosis, I can go along with a lot, but I think in terms of the solution, there's a, there's a few anomalies with it. Uh, just to, I'll just say one now and then perhaps come back on the industrial policy a bit later. But to pick up on Rob's point, Rob made the point, and you said right at the beginning, John, that this is not a UK-only problem. It is a Western-wide problem. Uh, and that creates an anomaly if you say that a key part of the solution is to lower the exchange rate. The exchange rate is a relative mechanism. You know, if our exchange rate goes down, our real uh, uh, weighted exchange rate, then that means others are going uh, up. Uh, not, you know, everybody in the West cannot devalue at the same time. And that seems a problem because the problems are pretty similar. I mean, certainly if you take our biggest trading partner, the United States, they have many symptoms which are the same. They have a huge current account deficit, they have huge external indebtedness, declining investment in business, declining productivity, and people there will say, we need to reduce the, the value of sterling, the value of the dollar, because our dollar is overvalued, and that's why we don't we have had deindustrialization. It takes slightly different forms in Germany and Japan, but generally there is a common Western problem <coughs> not enough investment. So how can 
devaluing what is a relative metric, an exchange rate, be a solution for all those? And I'd say that, that indicates a, sort of a, a, certain practical, uh, a certain practical problem. So maybe we need to look wider as to what it is that we need to do to get investment up. Um, rather than looking at for that as, a, 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 as one of the key core mechanisms. Right, uh, James and then John. Uh, well, like others, I found it very useful, John. Um, I want to raise one or two questions which are for you and for others. I mean, first of all, uh, I think from a, a Marxist background, which some of us are sort of still mired in or exiting, um, the uh, the relative fascination you show for the use values produced, power, machines, that kind of thing, um, that uh, is something that I'm always a bit suspicious of, because in my framework at least it's value, exchange value, exploitation, surplus value, more than use value that is the main event. And therefore to isolate particular sectors, it seems to me as being responsible for growth, while attractive and empirically maybe even true, I don't think uh, amounts to a whole sector. And I put it to you that, I mean, I, I back manufacturing, I love electric power, and we've all got problems, but uh, you dismiss transport and road and rail. Now, I've had a little controversy with Phil before now about transport, but I put it to you that uh, any analysis of the American uh, second half of the uh, 19th century you read Alfred Chandler's Scale and Scope and uh, uh, the Visible Hand, the railroad, there as in Britain, as in Russia, and in many other places, was absolutely essential to the growth that's happened. And uh, I'll also put it to you that while you're right that the NHS is not going to lead to any value or growth in a hurry, uh, the deplorable state of our transport in this country, not just because there are two car buffs here, uh, I know, is you know a part of a, a major problem that uh, that we face. So that's uh, you know if we are going to talk use values, I think we we have to just mention that. The second thing is, it's not just as uh, Nico McDonald rightly says that the distinction between products and services is you know a bit semantic nowadays. It is actually a very <laughs> important development that people in manufacturing. In fact, it's so important it's become the, the Rolls-Royce example and we all know what that means, that they're in maintaining an aircraft in the air than making rubbish engines that always collapse as we know with Rolls-Royce. So, um, you know, nearly every product nowadays has an IT dimension written into it which will require services, maintenance, guarantees, warranties, call centres, and all the rest of it, right? Indeed, in the energy sector, it's those silly services that are more important than the kilowatts now, as we all know from trying to change our service provider. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the same thing about that is, if we're talking use values, and here we're manufacturing versus quote-unquote services, you didn't, it seemed to me, um, give any justification for the idea that services are less price sensitive, if I have you right, than manufacturing. Why would you say that? Uh, it seems to me that, you know, car washes included, services, uh, you know, which are no longer automated but actually have gone to services, um, you know, they, they are not at all uh, price insensitive and people care very much about that. So those are some of the, you know, the nitty gritty questions I'd uh, like to raise with you.
Okay, that's all okay, I to throw at you. Oh, <laughs> let me see what I can do. Uh, first of all, Nicholas' point about nostalgia. I, I, I'm not nostalgic for manufacturing at all. It's just that all the evidence that I've managed to accumulate suggests that if you want to get productivity up, which is the only way you're ever going to raise living standards, then you're much more likely to get it done in manufacturing than you are in in in, in services. Um, and uh, you know, I just think that that's a, a fact of life. Um, on industrial strategies. Um, I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time over the last year or two involved in, in quite a long exercise and looking at all sorts of ways of trying to get the economy to perform better as a result of industrial strategies, you know, getting you know more allocation of funds to, to industry and so on. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just came away feeling this really unsatisfied. I think a lot of the industrial strategy elements have got a lot to be said for them if you combine them with the demand side as well. And, uh, you know, if you do get the economy to grow more quickly, then you do need to educate more people and you do need to have more investment. But the problem is if you just rely on more education and training and more investment without doing anything on the demand side, you just finish up by educating people who've then got no jobs to go to and, you know, having industrial banks and so on when nobody wants to borrow the money because there's no, no profitable use to, to, to which it can be put. Um, on Tony's point about the uh, the, the euro, uh, I can't read my own writing here. Um, uh, oh, this was about. Oh, oh yeah, you asked about the eurozone and so on. Yeah, What's no, going to no, happen no. there? Um, and I think the eurozone is a really interesting case of what happens if you jam exchange rates together, apparently irrevocably, in in countries which have got very diverse economies, and you know the the growth rate in the EU has been abysmally low for the last 20 years. I mean, Italy, there's no increase in living standards in Italy at all for the last 20 years. And, and the, if you look what's happened to Greece, where GDP's gone down by about 25%, you, you've got Northern Europe, which has done relatively well. And this all seemed to be absolutely classic cases of what happens when you finish up with exchange rates which are inappropriate, uh, and, and, and some too low, some too high. I mean, the, the, the situation in Germany, Germany's got an absolutely massive balance of payment surplus, something like 8 or 9% of GDP, um, which is really absurd from the German point of view. I mean, essentially what they're doing is producing 8 or 9% more than they're actually consuming. And they're just giving it all away to somebody else and never get, never, never get paid back. And that makes as little sense, in my book, as doing what we do, which is to enjoy a living standard of about 5 or 6% more than we're actually earning and finish up by selling off all our assets to pay for it. I mean, it's, just, it's these imbalances which seem to me to be what you really need to avoid, like the plague. What will happen to the euro in the, in the long term, I'm not sure. Uh, the history of currency unions over the, uh, over the last 200 years has been pretty poor if they don't finish up in the end by being unitary states, and that may be what will happen in the EU, but if it isn't then uh, you know, I think what you may well find is that there's going to be more and more sort of national populist parties coming along, more and more discontent with the effect of the euro. You can see what's happening in places like Italy. And I think in the end it may fracture, but we'll, 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 we'll see. People have been pro promising it will fracture for a long time. Don't <laughs> <you? laughs> um, oh, oh, yes, so the social return in China. I've got the figures here. Uh, I can, there's a table here in this pamphlet which um, you might like to have a look at as what it actually is. Um, it's, it's on this page here and you can see how, how high it is. Now, how did they manage to achieve it? 
The answer is they've frittered away loads of money on infrastructure projects which didn't pay and, and housing projects where people haven't used the, the housing. But what they did do was to invest not vast amounts of money. About 15% of GDP in America went into uh, the really productive sorts of investment. One of the things that's really interesting, actually, is how good Chinese statistics are. If you look them up on the internet, there's loads and loads of detail you can find out about what's going on. Whereas we spend about 3% of our GDP on these crucial areas, technology, manufacturing and power, technology, mechanization and power. China spends about 15%. Now, the other 30% or something of GDP they spend on on investment it goes on all sorts of things which don't produce much of a return. But the return on the bit they do invest in technology and mechanization and power has been so substantial and so effective that the average has been very high. And this is how they've managed to achieve the very high growth rates they have accomplished. Um, on it all being difficult to do, yeah, I think it is. I think one of the problems is actually that the met metropolitan elite, the people who make the decisions in this country, uh, actually aren't affected all that much by relatively low growth rates because they, on the whole, you know, have loads of money, they've got very good jobs, they've got enough to keep by. You know, the, the, the people who really feel the pinch are people much lower down the income scale. And, you know, the very fact that you've got food banks and all this sort of thing, <coughs> and, and a lot of people who are really feeling pretty desperate, you know, is the other side of it all. And I think it is very difficult to get across to a lot of people just how difficult life is for large numbers of our fellow citizens who aren't doing nearly as well as, as, as they are. And just leaping ahead on, on the same sort of issue about how you can get a public opinion change on all this, I think it's actually very difficult to get politicians to take the lead on all this. And I think what may be possible is to get some sort of changes in, in the, the commentariat, what they say, public opinion, the academic world. And, you know, if that happens, then I think you get the politicians to shift. But, you know, I don't think you'll find that politicians will take the lead. I mean, devaluation is all toxic in, in uh, political terms. You know, you've got to change the climate of opinion. Although, I mean, it, it, as I was saying earlier on, it is interesting how if you look at a lot of the rest of the world, they don't regard having a strong one or whatever it is in Korea as being a good idea at all. They think it ought to be as cheap as possible. And the same thing applies in China. So, you know, we're, we're right out on a limb in thinking that a strong currency is a great thing to have. Most other people in the world don't. And on to the point that somebody raised about whether, um, I think it was you, you, you know, you, I, you're absolutely right, you can't have everybody devaluing. What I think we do need to do is to get more of a balance in the world. I mean, if you're going to get all economies growing at very roughly, if, if this is what you wanted to do, I think they would all have to have roughly the same proportion of their GDP involved in manufacturing as a broad, broad uh, sort of metric for, for getting them all to grow at roughly the same, same rate. But what's actually happened is you've got something like 30 or 35% of the Chinese economy all bound up with manufacturing, whereas we've got less than 10%. And it's these huge disparities which cause the, cause the problem. Now, you're never going to equal it up exactly. Life isn't, 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 isn't made like that. But I, mean, I do think that if you, the world economy is going to stabilise down, then what has to happen is that the countries which have got enormous balance of payments surpluses accumulating all the time stop doing this. And other countries like the United States and the UK with huge balance of payments deficit which go on year after year, which is the mirror image, uh, 
have to have to disappear. And the only way you're going to do that is by shifting some of the manufacturing that goes in the Far East back into the West to even it all up. I mean, that seems to me to be, broadly speaking, what uh, what needs to be done. Let's um, if I picked all, all these words. We got here. Your, no, on your point, uh, James, about uh, surplus value and so on. Um, and I, I think at various times the railways, you know, have been very important. But if you want a really, really good example of what not to invest in, look at HS2. HS2 is going to cost something like 50 or 60 billion pounds at least. Probably. But that doesn't explain the low growth rate. But it certainly does. If you fritter away 60 billion pounds worth of your scarce investment resources on a project which is going to produce no return to speak of at all and not even do that for another 10 years or something, you will guarantee to slow the growth rate up. Now, if you look what happened with the railway booms and so on, I think in the 19th century that made a big difference. But I mean, if you look at the average return that this country manages to get back on investment in transport, it's unfortunately it is very low. It uh, you know it just uh, it just is, um, and uh, on your point about products and services, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, Rolls Royce and so on do earn a lot of money on servicing and, and, and uh, rather than just manufacturing, and to some extent that's the way the world goes. But I think it's completely wrong to think that that explains the huge differences there are between the proportion of GDP from manufacturing in, say, China which is 30-something percent, and the 10 percent we have here. It makes a bit of difference, but not really that much. OK, right. Let, I'll give John a rest. So, Nigel. Uh, Andy Haldane of the Bank of England put a paper out about 18 months ago, I think, with the LSE. Um, one of the things he looked at was, um, he started looking at it by region, he actually looked by sectors, and within each sector, similar statistics that you had some very good performance, but there was a big lump, yeah. which did okay, not quite zombie businesses, but really just doing enough to, uh, to, to get by. And his point was, is this a management issue? Um, and I'm just wondering, given what a couple of people said about the cultural issues, is actually there, there isn't a cultural incentive to grow your business. You just do enough to, to get by, keep the, keep the bank happy, there seems to be something, you know, enough drive to actually take the business to the next level. It's, it's not just economic pressures, perhaps, on these businesses. There's something that do, do, I, do I really want to take the risk? Um, and he, his latest point to that was if you look at businesses that are exposed, that, that export, they tend to have very good quality management because they've got to, because they're competing in the global market. So there was a global and a domestic thing that was going on. Um, but I just wonder whether, you know, in terms of management expertise, the extent to which you see that's an issue. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I must, I, I, it's Andy Haldane is the person who produced that report, mm -hmm. I know quite well. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think he's right. I mean, I think what is clearly the case, and it's not just in manufacturing, it's right across the piece, it's yeah, right in services all over the place, actually, yeah. is that uh, on the whole, the quality of management is very patchy. Mm -hmm. You've got some world-beating firms, uh, aerospace and so on, which have done very well, pharmaceuticals have done very well in motor engineering we have. Um, arms production, if you think that's a good thing, you know, we're very good at doing that. Uh, but I mean, if you look, look at the profile of it all, you've got these leading firms who've done relatively well, and then loads and loads of other ones who are actually not performing very well at all. And I think part of the problem here is that the culture of this country has militated against going into manufacturing as a way of making a living, not just for a little while, but for generations. 
and you know there's been this culture that you know if you do build up a business you sell it off and buy a castle and get a, into the house of lords and all this sort of thing there's very little of the culture you have in Germany for example of you know low levels of taking money out of the business and reinvestment and going down the generations I mean that's not where we are and I think part of the problem is that if you have manufacturing or any sections of the economy which are very very difficult to make any money of you just will not attract able people and I don't think it's any coincidence that if you look around the people who are chief executives of most of the big companies in this country they're not English or British I mean they're, they're foreign the reason is you've got a much higher caliber of people going into the businesses generally and then this shows, I mean, if you're dealing with, uh, I mean, I had the, all this experience when I was involved in it all, you know, how d difficult it was to get British companies to react and to, to you know, be efficient and, 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 you know, the quality of management just was very poor. And I think that this, the, the explanation for the very low level of achievement, and this is why when I'm saying about uh, getting the, the manufacturing back up again, I think what we need to do is to attract a whole new generation of, of, of new entrepreneurs into into manufacturing in this country. I think trying to get the existing ones all shaken up to do much better is going to be very difficult. But it's much more likely you're going to get people moving in from outside who suddenly see the opportunities and get the money together and go ahead and do it. Okay. Any other thoughts? Hilary. So I had three disagreements. I, I, I agree with what you said, but I had three disagreements. One was just on... We dismiss the need to kind of cut um, budgets, governments cut budgets and austerity. Uh, but I, I do actually think that there is a lot of merit in the argument of having to re-examine welfare. And I don't say that because I'm saying, you know, you need to take benefits away from those feckless working people to make them work harder. But because there is a real disconnect, I think, there between the way in which welfare works and people's commitment to society. So I do think there is that some of that austerity, I think, is, is worth examining. On infrastructure, James wanted to, to uh, rescue um, transport from your writing up as, of infrastructure. I think I would also rescue things like cheap power. So, you know, the effect of fracking in the US and, and how, you know, freeing up what you would spend on power to spend on, on other investment, I think is really worthwhile. So I think that's just another bit of infrastructure I would want to rescue from you if you're writing it off. And then just on this issue, I mean, you, you use this term, uh, your scarce investment resources. I mean, there is loads of capital around. It's not a shortage of capital. So um, it's for the pensions flavor there, obviously. <coughs> there's loads of billions of pounds in pension uh, scheme assets that could be invested in. Uh, in, in investing productively, but actually it's been poured into um, investment gilts that guarantee negative real rate of return, uh, you know, rather than being in, invested productively. Um, you know, and, and it kind of leads to the question of, you know, you say we've got to build industry that, that returns 50%. Great, bring it on. I'm in, you know. Um, but I think we just need to be able to explain how we do that, and, and I don't quite understand yet how we get to being able to do that. And I think one of the problems, and I think part of your comments on culture, actually, the, the real issue is, the point power raised much earlier on, which is the way which we as a society view risk, and we have far too uh, negative a view of risk. Risk can be seen as, a, as something that has uh, upsides and downsides. But, you know, of course businessmen and business people are uh, risk-averse when 
you know, the effect of bankruptcies is treated as if it's a national disaster. So, you know, BHS, uh, Caribbean, those, those, those companies going under, I don't think there's any bad thing really. I think there's loads more companies that should go under. Um, it's not to say we shouldn't support the workers who are laid off, but you know, that supporting failing businesses because everybody thinks that's the right thing to do uh, is, it, it, I think, the root of some of those problems that you talked about. And finally, um, I just, if we talk about people with being, being discontented, I just think we need much more discontent. Uh, because I, I would say that one of the real problems behind where we are is the way in which Labour has been so devalued. And we've had this race to the bottom where the only thing that we think we're good at is minimum wage service industries. And actually, you know, if, if, if we could rebuild a kind of sense of, of working class pride in work, uh, which, which meant people would not do that crap work. You know, I think that's something that would, you know, once from the ground up, rebuild the need to build these, these new businesses that, that, that will generate your, your big returns. I want to add a bit to that as well, because one of the things about your this argument about reducing the value or the exchange rate is um, about the costs that we charge out to the world, effectively, we're changing the price of what we charge our labour costs at. But is there an argument for actually tackling those costs directly? So the fracking point, it seems a good one, that our energy, but in general, our energy costs, we're, we're by not too far away now, we'll be spending about £200 a household per year on green taxes or green charges on top of our fuel bills. Um, uh, or look at the, the, the housing. I mean, we, should, we need to be building far more houses. The, 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 the cost of housing is an enormous drain on wages. It, just sit, you know, it has to be dealt with through wages or credit. And that is a real problem. We're not building those houses because of the green belt and various other restrictions on housing. And therefore, that because property becomes this thing that's guaranteed to go up in price, therefore investment gets diverted into speculation around housing rather than into productive investment. There's whole, whole I mean, even even things like, um, I mean, it's more of a debate in America, I think, where they talk about um, wages having stagnated in America, but actually look at compensation and actually it's, it has been rising, but that's because more and more of it's been going into these health insurance policies. Yeah, so, and I think there's probably a little bit of that here in the UK as well in terms of, you know, your wages might be stagnating, but your rights are increasing in sense of more maternity leave, you get more, you know, you've got more rights, you know, in terms of being harder to sack. And I'm probably sounding like grad grind here and I don't mean to, but... But in but in, in lots of kind of feather bedding ways, that actually workers go. Oh, I suppose that's quite useful. Actually, I'd rather just have an extra ten percent on my wage packet. That, that that's the kind of thing that 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 goes on, and that it's not really conducive to the idea of let's go out and make money or, or do things better. Anyway, that, that's my point. Uh, Daniel, I think you were. Yeah, although in relation to that, if you look at changes in the US or Britain for that matter since the nineteen seventies. You have household incomes going up as opposed to wages, partly because of more women coming to the labour market. Yeah. So yeah. On, on the one hand, that's good that more women uh, can go to work. On the other hand, it's a problem if really uh, household incomes are increasing just because more and more people are kind of going out to work rather than productivity is increasing so people yeah. can be better off. 
but the main thing I wanted to ask you about, John, was just to say a bit more about monetary policy, because mm -hmm. I know you referred to it in your book a few times in passing, and I'm not at all suggesting it should be part of the solution, but it seems to me at least to be part of the problem, that, uh, and I think also it's something Hillary said, that if you do have low interest rates for over a decade, you have extraordinary monetary policy for over a decade, then you are propping up a lot of pretty naff, unproductive businesses, these so-called zombie companies. And then that does create a barrier to having a new round of investment, having new businesses, seizing new opportunities. So, so what's your take on the monetary policy question? Right, uh, I'll, I'll demands from Phil and James, so you, you speak, and then I might even... And Nico, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take another few and then okay. I'll let you come in, sum up, uh, answer all the questions because that will be about, <laughs> which will be multiple. So, uh, sorry, Phil, was it? Yes, Phil. Yeah, well, it's, to, uh, it's indicated that it follows up what Daniel's saying. I mean, leave aside the practical difficulties of, of lowering the exchange rate, um, but one of my big concerns is, is that historically, um, devaluation has been used as a protectionist policy, mm. uh, which has often coincided with a lack of investment. You know, even though devaluation can change competitiveness, it's actually one of these sort of feather bedding um, uh, mechanisms, and that it's a, it, it actually takes pressure off the need to restructure the economy and to invest in those, you know, high productivity, high profitability, high social rate of return businesses that you're talking about. If you look at you know, historically, look at the big devaluations in, in Britain in the 20th century. Look at 1931, 1967, 1992, uh, 2008. You know, those the big devaluations did not stimulate, uh, you know, a lot of manufacturing government, state, stepping in to prop up what exists, to do their best to try and maintain the status quo. And that seems to me to be, to be the problem. So for example, just to finish with an illustration, on monetary policy, John, you make the point in your book that how do governments keep the interest rate low? Well, one way to do that would be to have a very easy monetary policies. But it seems to me that's going to create more of a problem, because if you keep interest rates very low as they have been, uh, uh, in order to try and keep the currency down, then you are going to be propping up all the businesses which are low productivity and low profit and not investing, because those businesses will be able to continue to survive on debt. So the debt economy would seem to be supported by devaluation rather than being uh, swept away by it. So that, you know, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a concern, and, and I could throw in, uh, just within that, you're, you're also talking then about a world which is becoming more protectionist at the moment. Uh, and I'm not talking about Trump, I'm talking <coughs> about you know, the globalists who are arguing for a lot more protectionism. The European Union uh, you know, stands out in that. But you're throwing in another protectionist policy in a world which is becoming more and more uh, rivalrous for protectionism. So there's a political problem as well as the economic one of propping up the old. Right, James? Well, just to extend that a little bit from Phil, I mean, I think there's an <coughs> another element of nostalgia here, if I may, which isn't a sort of uh, manufacturing nostalgia. I mean, I, I oppose that, although I like manufacturing. But it's the... Uh, you were bringing me back a little, John, to, you know, 1931, which you refer to, Phil. It was a sort of Keynesian, I'm not accusing you of that, critique of you know, Ch uh, Churchill and the gold standard and all of that. And my question to you was, what did coming off the gold standard really do for us 
by way of the depression, you know, not a lot. So uh, I just wonder whether this, um, you know, you, you're not articulated it in terms of gold, but it, the, to centre everything on the currency rate seems to me wrong and uh, somewhat one-dimensional. The second thing I've got to say about that is who's going to do it? Because uh, we've got an independent Bank of England now. I can't see Mark Carney doing it in a hurry. And I've got to say, among all the Brexit slogans I've heard, you know, what do we want? The pound equals one dollar. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> you know, it's not no, no. really sort of setting me alight. Uh, so I wonder how you'd sort of popularise, without being a populist, you understand, or only the upside of populism. How would you make that, how would you concretise that, knowledgeable that... You only had to be subjected to a Gestapo interview and use the word concrete about your relationship with your wife, and it was for the, you know, you were hauled off. But can you make it more concrete? I'm sorry, it's an old historical joke. <laughs> um, yeah, but can you make it more, if not more concrete, more sensuous or more popular? You know, yes. what, what you're saying about the exchange rate. More agitational or something. Yeah. Yes. Nico. Uh, I liked your point about uh, the lack of long terms of British industrialists. And that, that old phrase that the Victorians used, in fact, even more recently, that he's in trade yeah. being a kind of condemnation of someone's got their hands dirty rather than being in uh, something more uh, more highfalutin. Um, but on that, what's a lot of people who see problems with the British economy look to the Mittelstand in Germany as being a kind of model for often family owned, you know, privately held companies which are long term and um, serious about investment and so on. I wonder what, whether you thought there was anything in that model, whether it, you can't really apply that model to the, to the UK. And secondly, you mentioned R&D in your earlier remarks, and having been involved in that area, I wondered what you thought about the potential or lack of investment in R&D in the UK as it relates to productivity, uh, <coughs> new industries. Uh, and perhaps to the, the catapults in particular, which I, I'm sure you've, you're, you've looked at as a model for bridging between scientific research and commercialization. And lastly, you talked about the need for a new generation of entrepreneurs. Um, I mean, I, I do see that to an extent, you know, with quite a lot of caveats. There's a lot of my colleagues are starting businesses doing things in high tech, uh, creative technology, internet of things, um, digital services that connect back to uh, environments and so on. Um, I mean, clearly, it's not a great environment to do that in the UK, but in London, in uh, the Northwest, uh, in the Southwest, and so on, there's a lot going on in that area. Do you have any sense of the potential of those kind of industries, or is it too far below the radar for you to have picked up on it? Right. Tough gig, John. I'm sorry. It's well, a lot to cover, but give it your best shot. I'll give it your best shot. Right. Henry's point uh, on welfare. Um, I mean, there's a whole other debate on welfare, which I don't think probably we can cover this evening. Um, on cheap pound fracking, um, I, I must say, I take a more bullish view of fracking than perhaps some of the around the table do. I mean, it does seem to me that, uh, that uh, the America has done incredibly well out of fracking and that we've been very, very cautious about it. I think we'd afford to be a bit more uh, open-minded about what the benefits are before we start closing it all down personally. Um, on scarce capital, it, it, there's a very important point about getting the growth investment up. 
which is you need to do three quite separate things, although they're all interlocked together. You need to shift real resources out of consumption into investment. And that means that you've got less to consume, other things being equal, uh, if you spend more money on investment. The second thing is somebody has to do the saving to, uh, to make sure that the claims on the resources are, are actually not made on, in consumption terms and shifted to investment. And thirdly, you need to have lots of cash available. Now, there is lots of cash available at the moment. The problem is that companies are really struggling to find anywhere to invest that money which is actually going to make anything. And this is why you get share buybacks and all this sort of thing. And until you get to increase the demand side of it all, I don't think you're going to change that. Um, on uh, how do we get industri industry going? I think if you made it profitable, you would find people would do all sorts of things. In my own experience, JML, the company I built up, you know, we buy all this stuff in China. Why on earth are we buying all this stuff made in back of beyond in China rather than making it in the UK? Well, I'll tell you why, it's so much cheaper to do it. Uh, but I mean, if you said, could we get it done here? Of course we could. Most of what we do is injection moulded. I don't know if you're familiar with injection moulding. But injection moulding is not rocket science. You know, and you can buy <coughs> injection moulding machines, you can buy the raw materials, you can buy the components. There's world markets for all these things. The problem is just the cost of doing it here. And, uh, and you know, until you change those cost structures and make it profitable to do so, I think you'll really be struggling to get anything changed. But I think if you did change the cost structure, you'd find that uh, the response rate was very substantial. If I could just jump to what James said. James, you said that nothing happened as a result of the devaluation in 1931. Not true. The British economy grew faster in the 1930s than it's ever done before or since. It grew at about 4 or 5% per annum. And the reason why we survived in 1940 was because there was a huge amount of investment in British industry in the 1930s because it was so profitable to do so. And what happened there was that the investment was all modern machinery which actually was then pressed into service to enable us to survive. If you compare us with France in those days, France stayed on the gold standard right up until 1937 or 38 with the Blum government. And as a result, industrial production went down and down and down, so did investment, and the French collapsed in 1940 and we didn't. I think very largely because of the difference of, of um, monetary policy experience over that period of time. And it, I mean, if you, if you want to... Let me give you a copy of this, because the figures are in there take it, of, of, of just how much, and, 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 and what happened to manufacturing. Manufacturing hugely increased in the 1930s, with vast numbers increased in, in employment and in investment and in, in output. Anyway, going on quickly, um, zombie companies, various people mentioned them. I think that's right. I think the answer is if you do have very low rates of interest for a long period of time, you know, you don't put the same pressure on zombie companies, you don't get the resources... Uh, but, but uh, and, and I think there's some element of truth in what you say, that you do feather bed companies. You make it easier for them. But in a sense, making it easier for them is what needs to be done. Because making it easier for them, in a sense, is a proxy for saying making it more profitable. And, you know, what you've really got to do... I mean, economic incentives... Incentives are actually critical to economics. What you've got to do is to provide people with incentives to do what, what really is in the interest of the economy as a whole. And although I, think, I agree with you, some of it will disappear off into golf courses and what have you. Uh, the, the reality is that people will respond to opportunities for making money, and that's what really we need to do to make sure they shift resources in the right direction. On racing to the bottom, you know, I, I've got a huge amount of sympathy with what you say. I think a whole lot of jobs we've got in this country are real rubbish jobs. 
and you know the low productivity. I think partly, you know, without getting into Brexit and all that, I think one of the things that was a real problem was that when it was very easy for companies in this country to recruit people who were very willing workers, very motivated, um, and very cheap. There wasn't much of an incentive to, to in, in, invest. And I think one of the reasons why investment has been low is because of that. And what really you need to do is to make labour more expensive in a way, to, to then make it worthwhile trying to mechanise it and get productivity up so you can afford the costs. On uh, Rob's point about energy costs and housing, yes, you're abso absolutely right. Energy costs are very high in this country, and that's one of the reasons why the costs of exporting are, are difficult. Uh, on housing, I mean, just on investment, the last thing I would say is what you want to do is to spend all the money on investment in, in just these highly productive areas. You've got to have a balance. You do need to spend more money on housing and on, on transport and all these other things, schools and hospitals. I mean, one of the one of the problems about this country is the population is growing very quickly, but we're spending nothing like enough to stop our social capital getting diluted down. Uh, because if, if you divide the total accumulated capital of the country by the population, you finish up with a figure of about £140,000. And that means every time the population goes up by one person, we need to spend £140,000 on schools and hospitals and roads and office blocks and everything else to stop our social capital getting diluted down. And we're spending nothing like as much as that. And this is one of the reasons why there's so much pressure on the National Health Service and the school system, uh, because investment on, on the social side of what we do is way too low, as well as on the industrial side. Um, and you're certainly right in saying that you know, banks and so on lend a huge proportion of their, their, their available cash on property rather than uh, on, on industry. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to borrow any money for industrial purposes now. They want guarantees and all the rest of it, whereas, you know, lending money on housing is all too easy for them, and that's been another big problem. One of the reasons why Japan was so successful after World War II wasn't they did have a very competitive exchange rate, but they also had a policy run by the, the, the central bank of making it very easy for industrialists to borrow money they were washed with cash and therefore they could afford to invest in all the latest technology and machinery and you know we're just completely the other end of that particular spectrum but I think that's something else we could do as part of industrial strategy if there was the right sort of demand in place there. Women in the labour forces you're right one of the reasons why the economies of the West did expand as fast as they did after the war was a shift away from agriculture a shift towards more women being in the labour force all of which helped which we're not getting now but this again again is an argument for shifting back to what can be be used to uh, to make the economies grow more quickly which I've tried to describe on monetary policy I agree you know lower interest rates forever and not really want to be I mean I think really the long-term rate of interest needs to be three or four percent something of that order rather than half a percent or whatever it is now um, and, but, I mean, the trouble is when the economy is as depressed as it is and growing as slowly as this, I think putting up interest rates at the moment is not the right thing to do. But once you've got the economy growing at reasonable speed, I think that sort of adjustment should take place. Um, your, your Phil's point about feather bedding, I think we've probably covered. Uh, and James's point about nostalgia in 1931. I mean, the figures are in that this pamphlet here, which I've got copies if anybody's interested. Some of the figures that I uh, referred to are in there. Um, and uh, who, who's going to who's going to do it in terms of getting the uh, public opinion changed? 
I think, I think the answer is that people are beginning to get a bit more concerned about these issues. I mean, the whole, you know, way politics are going in this country, the way the old left-right divide is sort of folding up, now we're going much more to a sort of nativist on the one hand, globalizers on the other hand type of uh, political situation. Um, you know, I think there's much more realization that unless something is done with people who aren't doing very well in this country, uh, who previously, you know, were relatively quiescent, but are much less quiescent now, then we're in for a very rough ride in the future. Um, and then finally, on Nico's point about middle stand, I think that is a bit of a model, although you know it's not something that you recreate just very quickly. Um, now, you know that's something that's been a tradition in Germany for a very long period of time. That's his family-owned companies, but I, mean, I think if we did have more of that here, that would help. On R and D, yes, I think we should go and you know try and get R and D up. I think the idea that R and D itself produces a very large increase in GDP is isn't correct. It's the application of R&D that does that. It's the investment that flow from it. But if you don't do the basic science, then the danger is you never get to the second stage. Um, and then on high-tech startups, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's a mistake to say that high, high productivity gains only come from manufacturing. They don't. I mean, you can get to them in, in, in services as well. Although, I must say, just to finish on this thing, one of the really interesting things that, about productivity is what's happened with computers. Because what happened with computers when they came in in about 1970 was they spread everywhere. And I think some famous American economist said, you know, computers are everywhere except in the statistics. And what they're not doing is putting up productivity, and I don't think they did. And the reason for this was that although you could do lots of things with computers you couldn't do without them, by the time you've got the cost of the computer and the IT professionals who were putting it in and the programs and all this sort of thing, the costs actually were very high and the returns were relatively low. Where computers have really, really scored is in manufacturing. Because what if you've got a computer controlling a machine much more accurately than a manual labourer could do, then you really can increase productivity really, really dramatically. And uh, so I think what you've, you've got actually is opportunities now for increasing productivity with computers, which you didn't have before. But it isn't in services, it's in manufacturing. And that's another reason why manufacturing is so important if you want to get the GDP up. Okay, thank you very much, John.